Hey now, this is Doc. You're listening to Body Talk on Intertribal Radio. Today we're going to be introducing Nick Dater, who has created a song about this time of madness and oppressive government guided by dark forces, about dislocation and dividing lines, a warning song for the generations and future generations. Today we'll also be discussing how ecocide is the fifth crime against peace, against humanity, and what's left of us, decolonization and self-determination. We'll be discussing how law can save the earth and why education, not punishment, is the solution to reducing crime. Hang on. Butt talk. Seven years ago, I was standing in the Royal Courts of Justice in London. I'm a barrister. And it was the very last day of a long-running case where I had been representing a man who had been very badly injured and harmed in the workplace. And I was his lawyer, and I was giving voice on his behalf in court. There was a moment of silence while we waited for the judges to come into the room. And at that moment, I looked out of the window and I got thinking. Let me move this. I looked out and I thought, you know, the earth has also been badly injured and harmed. And something needs to be done about that. My next thought actually changed my life. I thought, the earth is in need of a good lawyer. <laughs> Now, that was a thought that didn't leave me alone. And I went away and I thought about it. And I thought, well, you know, as a lawyer in court, where are the tools that I need to represent the earth in court? And what I realized was that they didn't exist. So I started thinking about this. What do I need to put in place for this? What if the earth had rights? After all, we as humans have rights. The most important right of all, of course, is our right to life. What if the Earth had the right to life as well? And I spoke to other lawyers about this, and they said, Polly, you're mad. <laughs> of course the Earth doesn't have rights. And after all, there's a whole body of environmental law out there. You know, why not just use that? But I said, well, there's a problem here. All this existing environmental law, it, it it's not working, it can't be working, because you just have to look at the Amazon to see that it's not working. We're looking at mass damage and destruction that's escalating every day. Existing law is not stopping that. So what I did was I looked around to see who else was thinking like me. And what I discovered was that, in fact, there are many people thinking like me. 750 million people out there, to be exact. 370 million of them are indigenous. They get the idea that the Earth has the right to life. They get the idea that life itself is sacred, not just human life, but all life. Also, I discovered Buddhists understood this way of thinking as well. That's another 380 million people. 750 million people the size of Europe already think like me. 
It's just that it's not written down in law. But then I got thinking further, because of course, actually, with our human rights and our right to life, that's also governed on a one-to-one -one, by the crime of murder, or in America it's called homicide. When it's ourselves and our community, it's called genocide. And I was actually speaking to a large audience a couple of years ago, back in 2009, about Earth rights, when someone in the audience said, you know, we need a new language to deal with this mass damage and destruction that's happening of the Earth, of our ecosystems. And I thought, you know, you're right. It's like genocide. It's an ecocide. And it was one of those light bulb moments. Literally, I felt as if a light had gone on above my head. And I thought, my God, it should be a crime. Is that possible? Could we make ecocide a crime? And I rushed home, and I went off and I researched this. And three months later, I came up for breath. <laughs> and I realized that, in fact, indeed, not only could we make it a crime, but it is a missing fifth crime against peace. Now, you'll see here in the slide, what this sets out here are what are known as the international crimes against peace. We already have crimes against humanity, war crimes, genocide. They were put in place after World War II. And they act as umbrella laws that cover the whole of the world. They're kind of super laws. They supersede everything else. All other laws must come in line with them. Crimes of aggression, that's the run-up to war. That was just put in place in 2010. And I say that, actually, there's a fifth crime against peace here, and that is ecocide. What we have in existence already are laws that protect the well-being of life. Actually, what they protect is the sacredness of life itself. And I'm saying it's not just human life, but we expand our cycle of concern out, and that it's the well-being of all life, of all inhabitants who live in this earth. This is a diagram of what's happening in, in the world at the moment. We have damage and destruction on a mass scale playing out, which is what I call ecocide, and I'll, I'll, I'll unpackage that term in a moment. But it's leading to, amongst other things, resource depletion, which leads to, amongst other things, conflict, which can then lead to war, which of course leads to more damage and destruction, more resource depletion. In fact, what's happening in the Congo at the moment is a very potent example of, of this cycle spiraling onwards and upwards, faster and faster. Conflict leading to more war, to more damage and destruction, to more ecocide. And so it goes on, spiraling onwards and upwards. It's what Sir David King calls a century of resource wars. That's what we're looking at. Well, in fact, I think there's another way that we can turn this around. We can actually halt it in its tracks. This is not about slowing down this cycle, but it's actually stopping it intervening and by creating a law that actually acts as a disruptor to that spiral as it spirals onwards and upwards. And that's what a law of ecocide can do. This is the beginning of the legal proposal that I submitted into the United Nations. Ecocide is a crime when we cause extensive destruction, damage to or loss of ecosystems. 
Now, every word here is legally weighted. But possibly the most important word here is that word inhabitants. You'll see it's not just people, but we're talking about inhabitants. And of course, that's recognition that if we look at any given territory, it's not just human beings that live there, but there are other species as well. It's also a recognition of the interconnectedness of life itself. Ultimately, destroy the earth that we stand on, and we destroy our ability to live in peaceful enjoyment. Now, there are two types of ecocide here. Human-caused ecocide. And human-caused ecocide is when we see and we're able to ascertain that as a result of our actions, we are causing mass damage and destruction. And, and in fact, we heard earlier today about how, in human-caused terms, we're also creating injury in other ways, increasing of greenhouse gases. That's one outcome of causing mass damage and destruction. I have, in fact, just recently submitted to all governments uh, a concept paper on how we can use this law to close the door to dangerous industrial activity that is causing human ecocide, human-caused ecocide. But there is another type of ecocide that I, I wish to talk, to, about to talk about today, and that is naturally occurring ecocide. That's when we see tsunamis, floods, uh, rising sea levels, anything that causes mass ecosystem collapse. And we can create an international law that doesn't just govern corporate activity, but more importantly, that imposes a legal duty of care on all nations to give assistance when something like this occurs. Because at the moment, we have the likes of the Maldives standing up and saying, help us. We're looking at going underwater with rising sea levels within the next decade. And governments are saying, nothing we can do. In effect, what they're saying is actually, we don't have a legal duty of care to give assistance. By creating a law of ecocide, we can impose a legal duty of care so that all nations come together and preempt this. After all, there are four, 54 small island states that are looking at rising sea levels. And not just 54 small island states, other countries as well, Bangladesh are looking at not just uh, floods, rising sea levels, but, but also they have a triple whammy because they have melting ice as well. By imposing a legal duty of care on nations, the dialogue can begin to take place where we decide what are we going to do to give help. And that is very important, that we can move forward together in this, because ultimately, at the end of the day, even if they are at the other side of the world, we are in this together. But it goes further than that. In international criminal law, we have a principle called superior responsibility. Yes, this is about taking responsibility, but more than that, it's about imposing superior responsibility upon those who, if you imagine like a triangle, sit at the top of the triangle, those in a position of command and control. Now, that means heads of states, ministers. It also means uh, chief executives, directors, heads of banks, those who are in a position to make decisions that can adversely impact on many million people's 
underneath. And by imposing a legal duty of care upon those individuals, we actually create a framework upon which we can make decisions that are based on prioritizing people and planet first. And that's about closing the door to the dangerous industrial activity. What this comes down to is two different ways of viewing the Earth. View the Earth as an inert thing, and what we do is we put a price tag on it. We impose a value on it. What we do is we buy it, we sell it, we use it, we abuse it. We commoditize it. That's all governed by the law of property. However, there is another way of viewing the Earth, and that's about viewing the Earth as a living being. And when we do that, it comes from a very different place. In fact, it shifts dramatically how we look into the long term. Because once we see ourselves as trustees, as guardians, we start taking responsibility for future generations. And this is about realigning the scales of justice. Just now, they're out of kilter, they're out of balance. And I believe we can do that. We can rebalance that. In fact, we have done this once before in history. And I'd like to take you back 200 years. 200 years ago, William Wilberforce, who was the parliamentarian here in Britain, who took up the mantle for the abolition of slavery, when he stood up and said, morally, slavery is wrong. We must stop this. What he met with was a barrage of objections. Big industry said, you can't do that because it's a necessity. The public demanded, and what's more, our economies will collapse if we get rid of slavery. Well, those 300 companies that were involved in slavery, they came up with different ideas. They said, leave it to us to sort out uh, voluntary mechanisms. We will self-regulate this. <laughs> Too many laws already. <laughs> what's more, we'll limit the numbers if push comes to the shove. In fact, we can leave it to market forces to work this out. Create a cap-and-trade system, if you like. Now, the interesting thing is, is that the British Parliament said no to all of those proposals. And indeed, two days before William Wilberforce died, laws were passed, which created ripples right across the world in ending slavery. Now, if we look to today, what we're seeing is actually a very similar picture. What's changed here is the picture. This is of the Athabasca tar sands in Canada. Now, when I first saw these pictures, my heart stopped. It stopped me in my tracks. I looked at what was going on there, and I said, really, this is a crime. Now, what we've seen today is that industry is saying exactly the same thing. The difference is, is that, in fact, we have tried those solutions, and we've discovered they haven't worked. Now, one of the successes that came out of slavery was the fact that it was managed. There was a transition period. Not one of those companies went out of business. And William Wilberforce was governed by something that I'm also very governed by. This is not about closing down big industry. This is about making the problem into the solution. In fact, not one of those 300 companies went out of business after the abolition of slavery. Some of them went on to trade and tea in China. They were given subsidies. Some of them actually became the polices of the seas. Because William Wilberforce said three crucial things have to happen. You pull the subsidies, you outlaw the problem, and you create new subsidies in the other direction. And that's precisely what we're needing to do today. But it's more than that. It actually goes back in, into the annals of time 
of something that's known as the sacred trust of civilization. Now, this is a concept that goes back in written documents as far as I could find to the 16th century. And it's been enshrined in the United Nations Charter, which is our first successful international legal document put in place after World War II. And what that says is that members of the United Nations have a duty, a legal duty, to put the interests of the inhabitants, it's that word again, inhabitants, as number one. It's a primary duty that we have, duty of care, and that we accept as a sacred trust. Trust. So this is about us being trustees, stewards, guardians, and that we have an obligation to promote to the utmost the well-being of the inhabitants. It's a health and well-being provision. It's about putting people and planet first. A law of ecocide gives this section in the United Nations Charter legal validity. And that's very important. Because an international law of ecocide is a crime against humanity, but it's more than that. It's a crime against nature. It's a crime against future generations. Ultimately, most importantly, it's a crime against peace. This is about prioritizing people and planet over and above profit. But also a recognition that when we do that, when we open the door to a conflict-free world, we can create innovation in a very different direction that actually gives us abundance in many, many ways. Now, I'm not anti-profit, not at all. In fact, I'm very pro-it. But what I am doing is I'm closing the door to that which causes life destruction, and I'm opening the door to that which affirms life itself. So this takes me back to seven years ago when I started with one very powerful thought and how it's really led me on a journey, and it continues to do so. It's not just about proposing an international law of ecocide, but in fact, it's also beginning to lead me along a journey of examining what is it that we need here? Leadership, an adaptive leadership. We have fast-changing times. It's also led to a book, Eradicating Ecocide, that sets out this law and explains why law, in fact, has caused the problem. Did you know this? It is the law for corporations to put profit first. A company has a legal duty to maximize its profits to its shareholders. Now, that used to serve us well, but unfortunately, we didn't look to the consequences. A law of ecocide would supersede this and impose a piece of legislation that, in fact, allows us to look to the, the consequences. A think-before-you-act provision, but acts as a great turnkey. Now, in conclusion, I just want to say this. Martin Luther King once said that when our laws align themselves to equality and justice, then we will have true peace in this world. When our laws align themselves with a higher understanding, then we will have that true equality and justice. Ecocide is a law that allows us to align ourselves with natural justice. And I believe that in my life, that that is something worthy of actually giving my life to, to make happen. Thank you very much.
I need to find out Before the sun starts setting You never will forget But you keep regretting All my life I prayed But it doesn't really matter Everything I lost Everything that shattered Time had slipped away Left me stranded here Rolling down a hill They went rolling faster Little Jack and Jill have seen them tumbling after I said I feel fine but inside I'm dying If I said I don't care you know that I was lying In my head here instead a little boy crying They say like oil in a lantern Here and gone just like they say like autumn leaves scattered Rolling down a hill they went rolling faster Little Jack and Jill have seen them tumbling after
So tell me what's your answer Love's gonna shed another chance at healing And yes, it kinda hurts, but you need that feeling There's nothing I can say in the end, and real man There's nothing I can say, I see my silhouette kneeling Rolling down a hill, they went rolling faster My name is Jules. I am a theatre maker. Um, I'm a light-skinned, middle-class, private school-educated person. I'm a cis woman. I have a master's degree from the University of Oxford in Women's Studies. And what I'm trying to say is I spend a lot of my life nestled in privilege. I thought it would be important for you to know that before I keep going, because what I'm going to talk to you about is decolonization and self-determination. So broadly speaking, decolonization is the means by which uh, colonial powers, both structural and cultural, are dismantled. Self-determination is the act of freely creating your own future. These concepts have their own relationship in governance, in politics, and in law. But that's all much too complicated for me, so I'm going to focus on how we can enact these processes in our creative expression, both personal and professional. So as an Australian woman, um, I have profited from European colonization in a lot of ways. Uh, the houses that I lived in, the jobs that I got my money from, they were all on stolen land. But as a Filipina woman, I walk around in a colonized body. I am subject to all manner of racism, uh, casual, institutional, sexual. So as a theater maker, uh, what I do is make work that splays open these bodies and these identities in order to flesh out what it means to be both. I go about it in really random ways. Um, I write plays for Asian-Australian women. I uh, attempt stand-up and spoken word. I try to sing karaoke. Um, and I also come into rooms like this one and I chat about my personal business, whether anyone asks me to or not, that kind of thing. Um, so one question has come up in my practice uh, repeatedly, and that question is, how do I go about decolonizing myself and my practice without erasing myself entirely? In the East Asian theater community in the UK, one of the biggest questions that we face is how to combat our own erasure in the British cultural sphere specifically. Um, to roughly paraphrase from the wonderful Vera Chok in her chapter in The Good Immigrant, East Asians are approximated as the third largest ethnic group in this country. But spend one minute scrolling through BBC iPlayer and you'd be lucky if you could count the number of yellow faces that you see on one hand. That's if you're lucky. As if our general absence weren't enough, we seem to be whitewashed out of pretty much everything in sight. Um, earlier this year in January, the print room a once well-regarded theater in the west of London, opened a Howard Barker play that was set in ancient China. No prizes for guessing, but it featured an all-white cast and team. What was most upsetting to me about this was that the play seemed to use Chinese culture 
and living histories that belong to real Chinese people in order to promulgate some sort of exoticist fantasia for the benefit of goodness knows what or whom. The theater ended up defending the play, saying that any allusion to ancient China was merely invoking the abstract and folkloric idea of the universal, which I struggle to believe is actually a thing. <laughs> Particularly when you have real Chinese people looking at you in the face and saying that it's not. So, after protest upon protest, a bunch of uh, East Asian theatre companies came together and they sent out a survey to the community to gauge their concerns. It found that an overwhelming majority of us had a deep concern for the lack of East Asian representation in mainstream media, and a, therefore a deep desire to be part of the British mainstream. And yes, I am one of these people. Wouldn't it be nice to see more people who look like me on telly, yeah? <laughs> Wouldn't it be nice to feel valued and seen and heard just as much as anybody else? Yes, it would be really, really nice, but if I were to wake up tomorrow to an announcement that the BBC, ITV, Channel 4 and Sky were each going to commission brand new programs that featured all East Asian casts, do I have any proof that any power has actually changed hands? Earlier this year, a Melbourne-based artist and researcher called Tanya Kanyas wrote an incredible article, and it was called Diversity is a White Word. In the article, Tanya foregrounds the notion that in Australian arts and culture, diversity has been deployed in cosmetic terms, which means that white-led organisations started paying more attention to the white to non-white ratio of the people in their public images than they did to providing any meaningful support to people of colour behind the scenes. Tanya writes, just because we exist in a space does not mean that we've had the autonomy in the process by which that existence has occurred. And she uses this diagram in order to measure out um, whether or not that diversity initiative has actually done anything more than make the organization look good. Um, so this is Sherry Einstein's ladder of participation. At the bottom, we have our most tokenistic practices. So that's like engaging a group of people uh, in order to just manipulate them for your own benefit, for your own purposes. That's at the bottom. If you climb up a little bit, you get to consultation and placation. And that's things like hiring that one diversity officer for the building so that everybody has one person to talk to in relation to all diverse people things. Yes? So that's in the middle. Um, right at the top, we have delegated power and citizen control. And what that entails is a group or a community doing their own thing that they devise and that they execute themselves. An organization can come along and support and help so long as there are no strings attached and that the power and the control remains firmly in the community's hands. Um, now, let's go back to the weird fantasy that I had that all the terrestrial networks were suddenly programming East Asian uh, programs uh, for the general British public. Where do you think on Einstein's ladder of participation that would be? The networks themselves are actively trying to fulfill a brief of their own, so I think that's citizen control and delegated power out. The head commissioner of the network and the East Asian casts and teams that they are employing don't necessarily have equal power, so that's partnership out. If we're lucky, we're sitting pretty at 
around the consultation placation level, which means that East Asian people have, um, they have a presence in the room that they're in, but when it comes down to the final decision making, that's down to the network. So what was once a fever dream of ultra representation is now sort of a middle ground goal. At best, it's a small move towards something better than invisible. At worst, however, it might represent an inculcation and exploitation within a system that was not built for us in the first place. Because no matter how feisty or strong-willed these East Asian characters are, they have been created for mainstream tastes and mainstream interests. So, what does this have to do with decolonization? Well, my heritage is in the Philippines. It's a country that has undergone hundreds of years of colonization. Colonization still has an effect in the country's governance, its education, its economic situation, and its culture. Colonialism still has a say in how Filipino bodies walk around in the world. It says that we are more likely to be mail-order brides, to be sexually submissive, to be compliant, to be adaptable, to be trafficked. It also says that whiteness is something to be aspired to and that most of us aren't white enough. Therefore, we have a gigantic skin whitening industry, so massive that approximately 50% of Filipino people have tried a skin whitening product or use it on the regular in their lives. What we need isn't more of that. What we need is to divest power from what that is. What we need is something else. Yes, I do want to see East Asian people on telly, who wouldn't? But I also know that something fundamental about the way in which we consume the bodies of people of color and indigenous people needs to change. Last Christmas, I went back to Australia um, to develop a script with the National Playwriting Organization there, which was very cool. Um, and it was a total honor, because I'm a baby playwright, and it was really unexpected, and I got to work with some really amazing people. Um, the script that I was working on was for two Asian Australian women. And the director of the workshop, some way during the process, asked me to set my characters on a scale from Asianness to Australianness. Like, is she downtown Beijing? Or is she Crocodile Dundee? <laughs> the question threw me at the time, and it still kind of does, because what was happening to my characters is exactly what happens to a lot of first-gen migrants around the world. White people want to know, how Asian really are you? And it only encourages us to see ourselves as a spot on a spectrum, or worse, as a rung on a ladder towards whiteness. In the context of the workshop, even I could see that the question was justified within the discipline of Western dramaturgy, which is why what we need to do is to question the terms of engagement, question the tools that we are given for our self-expression. Do they fit? Do they confine us? Do they silence us? What I've learned in my tiny, tiny career as a theater maker is that anything less than citizen control, anything less than delegated power, and certainly anything less than a partnership has the potential to inculcate and exploit indigenous people and people of color into white colonial norms. But as somebody who has invested in and has worked at their whiteness for so long, how do I know that once I divest power from the whiteness that lives inside of me, that there will be anything left for anyone to erase? 
What I have for you now are three sort of um, things that might help us stumble towards an answer. They're also the test principles of a new performance production platform that I've set up called the Joy Offensive. Inspired by Tanya Kanyas, these three things are hopefully some self-nourishing ways in which we can acknowledge the whiteness of our cultural imaginations whilst also offsetting its power. The first of these is investing in and creating new spaces, physical, temporal, planned, or enacted by chance. I want to encourage you to keep on creating new spaces in which you are not the other. I started the Joy Offensive as a kind of active choice to not be a token yellow in somebody else's coloring book. I wanted to create a space in which hybridity and intercultural exploration were the norm and not the anomaly. So the first of our events that I'm producing um, brings together 16 short works by makers from Australia, New Zealand, and the Pacific Islands. And in the process, what we want to do is to value that space of togetherness, of intercultural inelegance, as much as we would a well-regarded space in the mainstream. So more generally speaking, investing in new spaces means legitimizing your front rooms, your back gardens, your WhatsApp conversations, chance encounters on stairwells, as much as you would, say, a university building, the Sydney Opera House, or the House of Commons. New spaces can be amorphous, they can be spontaneous, they can be undefined. If there's a space in which you feel like a human, like you're more than how you are perceived, then spend time in that space and see what happens. The second thing is placing power in the process. So this sort of goes against what we know about arts and enterprise, right? Um, what we're told is to maximize our reach, to maximize our influence, to treat our peers as workers, and to treat our audiences as customers to be satisfied. We're still as ignorant subjects looking to be educated. In the performing arts, what ends up happening is that we commodify artists' bodies in order to play into a system that doesn't support us back. If we place power and value in the journey of creating a piece of theatre, however, it works against this in some way. By thinking of the artists themselves as the beneficiaries, as the community members, not as the workers, not as the products, then we value the very act of self-determination in creating a piece of work just as much as we would the performance. By placing value and placing power in the process, we celebrate the, um, the discoveries made rather than the targets that we achieve. And the third thing is positive solidarity. Positive solidarity isn't necessarily about unifying disparate groups. It's about showing up for other people because that's what you think is just and right. A big impetus behind um, uh, setting up these mixed bill nights for Australian, New Zealand, and Pacific Island makers uh, was so that we could work together in the UK in ways that were new and unexpected. Um, these regions are quite far off, and they have some uh, intersecting uh, colonial history via Captain James Cook, but that's really about it. It's not about what we have in common. It's about looking each other in the eye and saying, we need to do something different, and we need to do it together. Now, none of these principles work a way to strip at whiteness. Most of the plays that we put on are Western in their construction. That's fine. We still use British currency to operate, and 90% of the time, we still speak English. But what the principles do is to create a space for us in which we can exist in our 
own new environment. With the freedom to hold any part of the process in contempt, with the freedom to work towards our own self-determined art practice, whatever that might look like. So how do we go about decolonizing ourselves and our practice without erasing ourselves entirely? I don't very well know. But I feel that the answer lies somewhere in questioning the structures that teach us what to value. By learning for ourselves uh, where these structures came from and learning to divest power from them when they stop working for you. I also think it lies in learning to value yourself, valuing your voice and your actions, and learning to value each other when you do the same. Thanks very much. There's something happening here. How many of you have ever seen a TED Talk that changed your life? Can I see a show of hands? A TED Talk that changed your life. How many of you have seen it? Okay, almost a quarter. That's really good. It happened to me too. It was New Year's Day 2013. Outside, it was six degrees. Gray clouds were blocking out the light of the sun. And rain was dribbling down on my windows. A typical Dutch winter's day. I had some free time between my late breakfast and a visiting friend. And I remembered I had this TED Talk by Polly Higgins on my to-do list. So I turned on my computer and I, watched, I, um, I sat down to watch it. And 18 minutes later, something had fundamentally changed inside of me. All of a sudden, I understood why I had become a lawyer, why I had left the world of law behind in my mid-twenties dissolutioned, and most importantly, why it was now time for me to return to it. Two and a half years later, I'm standing here on this red dot of TEDx Harlem, giving a talk about enlightenment. So let me explain you something about the enlightenment. The enlightenment was a very important period in the development of law. It gave us the separation of state powers and fundamental rights and freedoms. Central was the idea of liberation. The Enlightenment liberated individuals from repressive traditions, from power abuse by almighty kings. Thanks to fundamental freedoms such as the freedom of speech and the freedom of religion and the freedom of property, Individuals could now act, think, and believe as they wanted, as long as they did not violate the rights of others to do the same. Another characteristic of the Enlightenment was that it further developed the philosophy of materialism, which says that matter is all there is. Thanks to scientific breakthroughs, we could now measure, understand, and control the natural world, or so we thought. Also, we organized the natural world into neat categories or segments, because the third element of Enlightenment thinking is thinking in terms of separation. The Enlightenment separated facts from values, 
reason from faith, and humans from nature. Nature lost its sacred dimension in the Western world. Nature became an object that we could use and exploit. The invention of the steam engine played a very important part in this. Because thanks to the steam engine, ships could now cross the world seas independent of the strength and the direction of the wind. Colonists and merchants could now access foreign countries and the raw materials they held at their own control. So the idea emerged that we could conquer foreign peoples, but we could also conquer the earth herself. Legislative bodies paved the way for this because they, because they passed laws that uh, enabled companies like the Dutch East Indies Company to go and conquer the world. I think that these words by the British philosopher William Durham really captured the spirit of that time. He said, we can ransack the globe, penetrate the bowels of the earth, descend to the bottom of the deep, travel the farthest regions to acquire wealth. In the 20th and 21st century, we've really seen the effects of this way of thinking, this exploitative way of thinking, in combination with the very powerful technologies we have right now. Because natural disasters, as a result of climate change, are the talk of the day. And so are ecocides. Ecocides are the massive damage and destruction of ecosystems. For example, the Fukushima nuclear disaster, the overfishing of the North Sea, and the destruction of the Amazon. We've come face to face with the effects of a system. Back. <laughs> Back. We've come face to face with the effects of a system that places profit above people and planet. Unfortunately, law has not been able to turn this around. Environmental law has done great things in protecting parts of nature, but it has not been able to address the core flaw in our legal system, and that is that the Earth is considered to be an object, instead of the living, super-complex organism that it really is. So when the Enlightenment liberated individuals it contributed to a way of thinking that has enslaved the natural world. And law helped this process. And this disillusioned me so much 10 years ago that I decided to leave the world of law behind. But on that New Year's Day 2013, something shifted in me. Because all of a sudden, I realized that there were now lawyers around the world who are waking up to the fact that if we enslave the natural world, we also threaten our own freedom. Because without a clean and safe living environment, it's really hard to enjoy my right to health, or my right to education or to employment. Simply put, there are no human rights on a dead planet. And this realization 
lies at the basis of the climate case that Urgenda, the Dutch organization Urgenda, started against the Dutch state. I joined that case together with almost 900 other Dutch citizens, people like you and me. On April 14th of this year, we went to the court in The Hague, and we presented our arguments and demands. We said that the state is not honoring its duty of care towards us citizens by not reducing CO2 emissions quickly enough to avoid climate catastrophes. And we stood there, present generation, asserting our right to a clean and healthy environment. But we also were there to represent future generations, because the children of, their, of our children, they don't have a voice. They have no way to influence the decisions that are taken today. They are powerless but they will so greatly be affected by whatever is decided today. So we stood there giving them a voice, and I found this display of solidarity between generations a very beautiful thing. Other lawyers made a more radical move. They left the focus on human rights behind, and they placed the Earth central. We call them Earth lawyers. They say, the Earth is not an object, it's not property, we're not its owners. The Earth is a living being, it's alive. It has rights, it has intrinsic value, regardless of its value for us, humans. We have to balance and harmonize our own laws with the laws of nature. When I heard that, I was very excited. It made sense to me on a gut level. But I also realized there was a challenge, because how are we going to bridge the systems? How are we going to get from where we are right now, where the Earth is an object, to a world where the Earth has rights, the rights that we respect? So I set out on a journey to discover the answers to those questions. I interviewed Earth lawyers. I published about these developments. I joined national and international campaigns. And much quicker than I could have phantomed two and a half years ago, these heroes of mine, they became my colleagues. And I was asked myself to speak about Earth law, and I was being interviewed. I also realized that the break I took from law served me to prepare me to come back to it. Because now I could use my skills in communication and my experience with event organizing that I had gained in the meantime to help spread the message of Earth law. I also encountered a group of like-minded people in Amsterdam, people who had started an organization, an online documentary platform to spread these ideas. I joined their organization, and we are called Facing Crossroads. Central to the work of Facing Crossroads, and the topic of that TED Talk that changed my life is the mission of Scottish lawyer Polly Higgins. Polly Higgins, uh, for the last five years, is on a mission to make ecocide the fifth crime against peace. Let me take you back to the origins of the word ecocide for a moment. 
Who of you knows about the gas Agent Orange? Can I see a show of hands? Almost all, that's wonderful. Well, Agent Orange was obviously not very wonderful because the American army used this gas in the Vietnam War to destroy the crops of the jungle so that they could see the enemy. And they managed to do that on a massive scale. But they also poisoned the health of more than one million Vietnamese children, women and men, who were greatly affected. Many of them died, many of them were deformed. It was a tragedy. And Arthur Galston, he was an American biologist who had spent the 1950s in his laboratory making a chemical substance for the U.S. Army. That chemical substance became part of Agent Orange. When Arthur Galston saw the images of deformed children, he felt so appalled. He thought, what have I done? I have contributed to this disaster, to creating a monster. He became an anti-war activist overnight. He was the first in 1970 to call the massive damage and destruction of ecosystems an ecocide. And ecocide was, uh, became part of the public debate. It even became part of the Statute of Rome, which is the founding treaty of the International Criminal Court in The Hague. But it didn't make it to the finish line. Ecocide was taken out of the treaty text. And right now, Polly Higgins is on a mission to correct that error. She wants us to speak up collectively to say it is illegal to make money out of destroying the natural environment. This should be a crime against peace. I fully agree with that. And I know that if enough enough speak up and support her mission, we can make this a reality. Another Earth lawyer who I greatly admire and who I had the honor to interview is South African Cormac Cullinan. Cormac was a law student who joined the anti-apartheid um, resistance in South Africa. And when the apartheid regime fell, he became a lawyer and a maker of environmental laws. And he realized that now that the apartheid regime had fallen, the new challenge was the enslavement of the natural world because he saw the limitation of the legal system that sees nature as an object. He realized he could never do justice to the natural world in that system. He wrote a book called Wild Law, and in Wild Law, he proposes a new system, a system in which we humans balance our rights with the rights of nature, a system in which we agree that nature is worthy to be protected, I realize that might, sound, that might sound quite utopian, but the interesting thing is that principles of wild law found their way to the Constitution of Ecuador really soon. In 2008, Ecuador changed its constitution, and it gave rights to Mother Earth in its Chapter 7. Bolivia has done the same in its national laws. In the United States of America, more than 30 communities have given rights to nature. In Belize, a court ruled that the reef is not an object, but a living being that should not be exploited for commercial gains. Just four days ago, 
a high court in Delhi, India, ruled that birds have the right to fly. <laughs> they should not be kept prisoners in cages, and they should not be subjected to cruel treatment. Right now, a group of European citizens is preparing a petition for the European Commission, asking that we give rights to nature in Europe. When they get one million signatures, the European Commission has to listen to them. So these are very positive developments, and I could give you so many more examples. But then my TED talk would take way too long, so I'm not going to do that. But what I feel is that these examples, these developments, are proof that something is changing. Something in our mindset about how we relate to nature is changing. I'm so excited to be part of that. The question is, is this changing quickly enough? Unfortunately, for many people around the world, the answer is no. Because small-scale farmers and fishers and hunters, especially in the developing world, and especially from indigenous peoples, every day are confronted with the land grabs of their farmlands, with the pollution of the rivers they fish in, with the destruction of the forests they live in by hands of companies who want to grab the resources like wood and oil and coal and fish to make money. And many of them don't accept it. They stand up to, and to defend their environment. And that's why we call them environmental defenders. But the tragic thing is that being an environmental defender is such a dangerous thing to do. Because according to Global Witness, on an average, every week, two environmental defenders are murdered just because they speak up for the environment. One of them was this man, Indra Palani from Indonesia. He was killed last February in a struggle between farmers and a local paper corporation. He was murdered by security forces. He was just 22 years old his whole life ahead of him. NGOs worldwide are now placing a spotlight on the work of environmental defenders such as Indra Palani. I believe that being in the public eye can make all the difference for their private safety. Also, the organization Grout has done something fantastic. They have created an online platform for crowdfunding for the work of environmental defenders. So we can financially support them in their David versus Goliath-like struggles. So what environmental defenders and earth lawyers are doing is they are using their fundamental rights and freedoms, their freedom of speech, their freedom to demonstrate to help restore the Earth. They realize that we can only be free if the Earth is healthy, if the Earth is safe, if the Earth is clean. And the sharp distinction between humans and nature is dropping away. Because this time, we realize that we're always connected to nature, because we're part of nature. So in the Enlightenment 2.0, we use our individual uh, fundamental rights and freedoms, not in isolation, 
We use it in the context of a flourishing Earth community. We use them in relationship with the Earth. I personally have found my purpose thanks to that TED Talk. I realized I want to use my freedom of speech and my legal background to express my love for the Earth and my love for those who defend her. I took the inspiration I got from that TED Talk and with it literally changed the course of my life. I've come to realize that when an idea captures you so strongly as it did to me, it probably means that you're meant to become one of its spokespersons. For me, this has been a journey of daring to stand up and take my space and speak up for something I believe in. And I believe that all of us speak, should speak up for the Earth. I think that all of us, we should all use the fundamental rights and freedoms we got in the first Enlightenment to contribute to the second one. We should be the voice for the Earth. We should demand that we leave this crazy system behind that makes money out of destroying the Earth we live on, the Earth that nurtures us. So I want to do a call out to you, please step up, be that voice for the earth, do what you can in your own private life, make a difference, she needs you. And there are so many ways to do so. You can support the environmental defenders on ground. You can sign a petition to make ecocide a crime, a petition that I know makes a real difference. And you can join us at Facing Crossroads. I am committed to doing this. And whenever I have a day that I feel discouraged, a day that I feel it's too much of an uphill battle against these big corporations, I remind myself of these words by poet Denise Levertov that always give me great hope, and I will end with that. We've only begun to love the Earth. We've only begun to imagine the fullness of life. How can we tire of hope? So much is in bud. Thank you very much. Ladies and gentlemen, first of all, I'm very honored and privileged to be given the opportunity uh, this evening to share a little bit of my life experience with you, which is very unique and different to most people. Um, but like most people, I'm sure, when you think of prisons, or if you went to go to work or do something in a prison, I'm sure your beliefs and perceptions would be pretty similar. And that I'm going to share my perceptions with you that I had way back in 1968 when I went to work in prison for the first time, on the 8th of March in uh, 1968. I was assigned, as it happened, to Limerick Prison, a small little prison at the time in Mulgrave Street in prison. And I went, coming from Tipperary and grown up in the countryside, with a very, very black and white uh, belief system and perception of prison. And it was simply that all the baddies are in prison and all the goodies are outside. Um, and I was disillusioned within a week. Um, because seriously, what I found was, was the very opposite. I found a small number of people in prison, first of all, only 47 in Limerick at the time. There were only 600 in prison in Ireland at that time. There's around 4,000 today with another 1,000 probably on temporary release. So that gives you an idea over 40 years how the numbers have escalated. But what I found were a lot of social misfits. It reminded me of the, the, the population of a county home that were prevalent in Ireland at that time poor old misfortunes of people who had tough times and life was tough on them and they were more social rejects than they were criminals. 
And from then on, I began to question the perception, and I began to do some work on it. And over 40 years, I spent over 40 years in the system. And I'd hope that uh, my little input will, will raise awareness for you and make you more aware and maybe question more the reality of our prison system, our, our criminal justice system, justice being at, at the centre of that, and maybe a whole lot of issues around social issues as well that I believe should be questioned. I think it's the one subject I'm always amazed at is, is crime and criminality. It's the one subject that people very, very, very seldom, especially people in authority, very seldom question the cause uh, and the reasons for it. We react to it all the time on the basis of what's popular rather than what's right. And that would be very much my experience. And I want the first little point I want to make to you today is the absence of research, uh, national research in particular in Ireland around the whole criminal system uh, and, and the connection between criminality and the social circumstances of people and the educational circumstances of people is appallingly inadequate. Uh, the last decent piece of research that was done, would you believe, it was only done in Mountjoy, which is not Ireland at all, only a tiny part of the, of the prison population. And that was done in 1996. So that's 18 years ago. So if you're looking for pieces of research and bits of information and something to base your arguments on, um, well, then you, you have to go back 18 years to get anything that's really useful. Now, that's a disgrace. Uh, and we still plan and governments still make policy on what? On nothing. It's like a definition once I, I, I came across about uh, the contradictions between, uh, you know, about vision. And they said, vision without action is a daydream, but action without vision is a nightmare. <laughs> and we have a lot of the latter. So I'd be, my first little point would be saying that any chance you get that you should be advocates, especially at third level, we have a wonderful third level education system in Ireland. I'm sure there's huge numbers of students out there that would be only delighted to uh, get involved in all different pieces of research to, to bring forward some of the, the, the realities of it and the connection between social deprivation, poverty and criminality, because they're absolutely, totally linked. Now people, uh, you know, often don't like when I was saying things like, it's poor people generally speaking, that end up in prison. The world over, would you believe? It's not just Ireland. The world over. If you go into the prison populations, the world over, you'll find huge numbers, the vast, vast numbers, come from the poorest areas, poverty-stricken areas. In Ireland, 97% of all prisoners come from the two lowest socioeconomic groups. That's a phenomenal figure, 97%. In Dublin City, where, uh, and county, where Mount Joy really, in my time, used to collect most of its, its inmates from. Um, six tiny little areas in Dublin city, not postal districts, but tiny little areas in Dublin, were the sources of 75% of all Dublin-born prisoners. And that's another amazing figure, I think, that 75% of all people who were Dublin-born that ended up in Mount Joy came from those six tiny little areas. And what areas were they? They were all areas of public housing, local authority housing, and usually big flat complexes. And so my second little point today is, is, to, is to mention the significance of public service and local authority housing and the consequences of bad housing uh, planning. And I would go so far as to say, and Des O'Malley said it uh, five or six years ago in Limerick City when he got an honorary degree in, in Limerick University, uh, and he spoke about the social uh, difficulties in Limerick City at the time, and he said the, the housing policy pursued in Limerick City by the local authorities over the last 30 years was a disaster. I, I would echo that, and I would say that, generally speaking, in all urban areas, our public housing uh, policy has been a disaster. I don't know, do you ever think much about it, but 
What we do is we create housing estates and we put all the same social classes into them. All the professionals that are needed in that community drive in and present and provide the services and then drive out again. There's no integration. There's no stability in the communities. They're all one social class. Extremely poverty-stricken people. And so then little wonder that in many cases they fall by the wayside. Another figure that will, will, will astound you and astonish you, perhaps, is that in Mount Joy, when we did a survey in 1997, we discovered that only 7%, 7 out of every 100, had stayed at education, in education, in Ireland, after 16 years of age. Now, 16 years of age in Ireland is very significant in education because that's the age that, that you're required to stay in school legally. So after 16, you have a choice. Only 7% stayed in school after 16. 57% were gone by 15. And then no big surprise when, when, when a broader survey was done and discovered that 50% of all prisoners were illiterate or semi-illiterate. That's another amazing figure. Illiterate or semi-illiterate, 50%. So little wonder then that I am a great believer that education has a huge role to play in the whole change thing. I want to also say that, because I'm often accused of this, not that I'm too worried about it, but I, I just want to say to you that I'm often accused of being soft or a do-gooder or whatever, or making excuses for criminals. This has nothing got to do with making excuses for criminals. Anybody who goes out and wrongs and damages another human being deserves to be punished. I'm not, I'm not anywhere short of, of saying that bluntly. You cannot allow people to go out and damage other people and injure other people or to rob from other people or to destroy other people's property. That is not the point. The point is that once we look at the population and at the evidence, is there ways that we can reduce the number of people committing crime? And if we can say yes to that, we'll automatically reduce the numbers of victims. And it's far better to prevent people being victims of criminality rather than responding to it, which we do. I'm going to tell you a few little stories um, uh, that are real stories, but I think there is a little message in them. And the first little story I want to tell you is about Anne. Anne was a young woman, a lovely person, lovely personality, but she spent a lot of her, of her early years from about 15 onwards in prison. In those days, 15-year-olds could go to prison. And nowadays, you have to be over 18 to be sent to prison. Um, and when we were closing down the old prison, uh, which was built in, in 1858 in, in Mount Joy, as it happened, it was Christmas week. And on about the Wednesday, I went to visit the prison, and I was going through the compound, and this woman that I knew, young woman, Anne, came to me and she said, Hi, you're closing the prison on Saturday. And I said, Yes. And she said, I'm going to lock the gate for the last time. I said, No, 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 that's my job. I'm going to lock the gate. I was joking now. And she came back immediately and said, I'm entitled to do it. And that really did strike me immediately. When you hear someone in prison saying, I'm entitled to do it, you're inclined to pay attention. So I said, why are you entitled to do it? And this is her response. My grandmother served time here. My mother served time here. All my sisters bar one served time here. My dad is in prison and all my brothers. This is true. And my response was, yeah, you sure are entitled to lock the gate for the last time. And she did. On Christmas Eve, she turned the old key on the, on the gate of the women's prison for the last time. And we took an instant photograph of it. The next morning was Christmas morning and there was mass in the new prison in the Docker Centre. And Bishop Eamon Walsh, some of you will know Bishop Eamon Walsh, he was a chaplain in the women's prison for many, many years. And in my time, he used to come back every Christmas to celebrate mass on Christmas morning. And of course, Anne knew him very well from his time in the prison. 
So she sat at the front of the, at the, during the Mass with her little photograph, and the very minute Mass was over, she ran up to him and she said, Bishop Eamon, I shut down the women's prison yesterday. <laughs> she was as proud as punch. I shut down the women's prison yesterday. Her only claim to fame, really. And you might be wondering, because I bet you are wondering, how come one sister was not in prison? Well, she was, actually, but not serving a prison sentence. She was actually in prison because her mother was in prison, pregnant. And she was actually born while her mother was still serving a prison sentence. And so while she wasn't old enough to serve a prison sentence, she already had prison experience. And Anne's story is not unique. Most people, I often tell the story as well to give you an idea. When I go to middle class or upper class, which I do a lot to secondary schools to talk about justice and social issues and all that sort of stuff to, to students in second level. You know, the other time I go into a middle class or a, 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 an upper class school and the teacher might whisper to me, there's a boy in that class and his dad is in prison. Or there's a girl in that class and his dad is in prison. Of course, I go into the class, chat to them for an hour or whatever to be, come out and never know the person or the person would never come near me. Now, on the other hand, when I go to, to very socially disadvantaged areas where most of the people who go to prison come from, I'm not in the classroom a second when all the lads are up around me. Do you know me, Dad? Do you know me, brother? <laughs> I want to mention culture. Culture is powerful. For all of us, by the way. For every single one of us. The culture we're born into, the culture we grow up in, has a huge influence. Sometimes that's a very positive influence, and I'm afraid sometimes it's a very negative influence. But culture has a powerful influence. And while in the middle class and upper class areas the child would be mortified, in the poorer areas the child is almost boasting. Another statistic that would frighten you and annoy you and should really cause difficulties and, and, and arouse a, a reaction is that 77% of people in Mount Joy, that's over three quarters of them, spend time as young people, 16, 21-year-olds, in St. Patrick's Detention Centre. I think that's another a, a disgraceful figure, that three quarters of all young people who go into detention graduate. Instead of graduating from second-level education, they graduate to Mount Joy. That's depressing as well. Can things change? Education is the answer, and not academic education exclusively. Education in a general term. Social education, personal education, and with some academic education. I've often said that we're very good in Ireland, generally speaking, at educating people on how to make a living. We are not as good at educating people on how to live, and especially in social disadvantaged areas. A lot of the difficulties go back and find their roots in the lack of education or the absence of education, along with opportunity. Because my last little point tonight is around opportunity. I'm certain of this. I'm absolutely certain, and I know nobody in this, in this, in this theatre, but I'm fairly certain of this, that every single person here owes their success and their progress in life to other people as much as to themselves. Somebody identified your talent when you were young. Somebody nurtured it and, and, and encouraged you and facilitated you. And all along life, many people intervene and support you and help you on your way. There's no such thing as a self-made person. Every single one of us depend on somebody else or did or will in the future. A woman in Mountjoy many years ago writing in The Junkyard, which is a book published by Marcia Hunt about prisoners in Mountjoy, she wrote a little preamble, which is, so, which is so powerful. She wrote, I alone must do it but I cannot do it alone. 
I think that would apply to every single one of us. So I started with a story, and I'm going to finish with a little story about why, how an individual person can change a life. This young man, um, Jonathan was his name, he was 20 years of age, he looked 12, he was, he was in, uh, imprisoned in Mount Joy, he was there for a few weeks, and he wandered into the music class. And Larry, the teacher, was teaching a class. But Larry met him and he said, yeah, what do you want? And he said, I, I just heard the music, I, want, I just came up, I've re Well, he said, I'm teaching a class. He said, here's my guitar, play with that, and when I'm finished, I'll come back to you. And Larry went on teaching his class. Then he heard the Jonathan plucking at the guitar. When he went back, he said, where did you learn music? And Jonathan said, I never learned music. He said, where did you learn to play the guitar? He said, I never learned the guitar. As a matter of fact, I never had any musical instrument in my hand. And he came up to me and he said, could you give me, I was governor in Mount Joy at the time, he said, could you give me 169 euro? And I said, for what? And he said, I want to buy a guitar for a genius that's down in the prison. So we bought him the guitar. And he went on to study music. He left Mount Joy and went on to third level education to study classical music. A couple of years ago, I was down in that lawn one night and this woman approached me at the end of a talk to parents and she said, do you remember him? Naming him. And I said, of course I do. She said, he's teaching classical music today. The person I want to emphasize is not him, Jonathan, but Larry, the guy who, who kept his eyes and ears open and said, look, I can make a difference. I'm in a theater. I've always wanted to be in a theater and perform. <laughs> I never got the chance until today, and so I think it's very appropriate that I finish off uh, doing a short little performance, because this is a little reflection, but I actually is very serious. It's a little reflection that I hope will connect with every single one of you. It was a song one time uh, recorded by Bob Dylan. It was written by Phil Ox and it's called There But For Fortune. And it goes, show me the prison, show me the jail. Show me the prisoner whose life has gone stale. And I'll show you, young man, with so many reasons why. There but for fortune go you or I. Show me the alley, show me the train. Show me the hobo who sleeps out in the rain. And I'll show you, young man, with so many reasons why. There, but for fortune, go you or I. Show me the whiskey stains on the floor. Show me the drunkard as he stumbles out the door. And I'll show you, young man, with so many reasons why. There, but for fortune, go you or I. Show me the country where the bombs had to fall. Show me the ruins of the buildings once so tall. And I'll show you, young man, with so many reasons why. There, but for fortune, go you or I. Thank you very much.